All right, Acts chapter 22 is where we're going to be heading as we continue our journey through the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And as you guys make your way to chapter 22 in the book of Acts, there are Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you, by the way, if you're looking for one, and you're welcome to go ahead and take out that phone, and you can type in Acts 22. I'll assume you're looking at the Bible and not at Facebook. So Acts chapter 22 is where we're going to be. But in chapter 21, what we saw was the Apostle Paul arriving after a long journey into Jerusalem. And for years and years, Paul has had this love in his heart, this desire to reach his Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, Paul so loved his Jewish brothers and sisters that in Romans chapter 9, he said that if I could be accursed, literally if I could be damned to the point of going to hell for eternity so that my brothers and sisters could be saved, I would do that. That's some kind of love. I mean, I love you guys, but that's some kind of love when you're loving people like that. But this is the spot that Paul is in with his feeling towards his Jewish brethren. So even as the Holy Spirit is giving him a heads up that things aren't going to go the way that he thought they might when he arrived in Jerusalem, he continued on the journey anyway because he was motivated by his love for his brothers and sisters. Now, as Paul makes his way that direction, here's something I want to share with you, a quote from Warren Wiersbe. If Paul made any mistake at all in his continuance on this journey, it would be in this area. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says that truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. And so when we are not willing to be truthful with someone, and this is the spot that Paul's in, because as he arrives there in Jerusalem and introduces, or he meets with the early church, specifically with James, the leader of the church, and he tells about all of the things that God was up to on the missionary trail. Man, they are excited. Way to go, Jesus. I mean, they're, they're fired up about new churches being planted throughout Asia Minor. But then from there, they uh, question Paul's Jewishness. Does he still have a zeal for the law was their big question. And so they actually encouraged Paul to go into the temple and to put up money for a Nazarite vow for four of his Christian but Jewish brethren. Now, Paul at that point in time could have stopped them and said, look, uh, it's not that I'm condemning the law, I'm not forsaking the law, but the law was perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So there was no longer any more need to pay the price for these sacrifices. This system was a system that had gone by. It had been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But Paul did not say that, and the church did not stand up for him. And so in both scenarios, we see the church and the apostle Paul not being truthful in that this tradition had now passed by. And so this is the spot where Paul is in. He is not truthful, neither is the church. And so they question his track record. Paul, we're hearing that your teaching isn't in line with the law of Moses, specifically with the act of circumcision. And yet the church leaders knew Paul and where he stood with things. In fact, Acts chapter 16 tells us that Paul was so intentional about wanting to reach his Jewish brethren, he even had Timothy circumcised as an adult. So you can imagine the seriousness that Paul was willing to go to to be able to connect with Jewish brothers and sisters. So they knew his track record, but they weren't willing to be honest with themselves and with others. Now, as Paul arrives at the temple willing to put up the money for the Nazarite vow for these four men, he is spotted by some of these Jews from Asia Minor who had already tried to kill the Apostle Paul. 
And as they see him, they grab a hold of him and they throw a big fit. And what we see is an all-out riot now starts in the temple courts outside of the temple there in Jerusalem. And so as the riot begins, the Roman soldiers come down, they grab Paul, uh, they arrest him, they bring him into the barracks where Paul quickly makes it clear that he is a Roman citizen. They have to give him a trial as a Roman citizen. They can't just simply jail him. And so they ask Paul a question as they bring him into the barracks, uh, do you speak Greek? And Paul says, absolutely, I speak Greek. And, and yet, when he begins to address the crowd, Paul's one request for these soldiers is, I want to speak to the crowd gathered. What we see is he instead speaks Hebrew to them. Now, that's going to lead us into our story as Paul's getting ready to address the crowd here in chapter 22 that had previously mobbed and tried to kill him. In chapter 22, verse 1, I'll read, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept silent, they kept all the more silent. And so Paul begins by saying, men and brethren, let me give you my defense. The word in the Greek is the word apologia. It's actually the same root word we get the tergetics from. Uh, simply a defense of the faith. That's what that means when we talk about apologetics. Now, as soon as I bring that up, there's some of you that are already getting anxious, like, I don't know about defending my faith and apologetics. This is going to be a weird service. Hang on just a little bit, because when we go through this and you see uh, Paul and what he's going to do to address the crowd, I want to point out that he did not use a temple typology. Paul could have taken his Old Testament out and gone through it and said, I'm going to show you the ways uh, Christ is actually the temple throughout your Old Testament scriptures. And yet he didn't do that. Paul didn't pull out the Old Testament and say, I'm going to show you prophetically how time and time again throughout your Old Testament prophecies it points to the person of Jesus. He could have. He was educated enough to do that. And yet he did not do that. That instead, as the Apostle Paul gives a defense of his faith, what he's going to use is his own testimony. That's a beautiful thing because as we get anxious about defending the faith and saying, boy, I don't, I don't know enough. I don't think I'm clear enough. I can't speak about the Old Testament enough. I, that whole thing makes me nervous. You know what you do know? Your testimony. And you know the beautiful thing is people can argue about all kinds of things in Scripture and they love to debate. Theologies, eschatologies, any kind of ology you can come up with, people want to argue about it. Cannot argue about is your testimony because it's your testimony. They weren't there. You were. And so Paul is going to lay out for them his own personal testimony. And this is valuable for us, I think, to go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter, speaking about testimonies, says here in verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense, an apologia, to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. In other words, what Peter's saying is when people see that you have hope in an otherwise hopeless situation, how could you have hope in the face of that circumstance, that verdict, that, uh, that diagnosis? How could you have hope? Peter says be ready to give a defense. Be ready to give an apologia, your testimony specifically. Why do you have hope? He then goes on in verse 16 to say, having good conscience 
that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Peter says that you should have a good conscience. In other words, your testimony need not only be in word alone, but also in action. That the absolute best testimony uh, I ever heard was the one I saw, right? Sitting here before you today, if I were to give you, in other words, uh, the very best evangelical message you've ever heard, I know some of you are like, yeah, right, he can't do that. You're probably right, I can't do that. But if I could, go with me there in the theater of the mind, if I could give you the greatest message you've ever heard, bring the house down. And yet afterwards, uh, we go to dirties, and man, we just tear it up. (laughs) I mean, I get right after it. What good did my words do? Right? My actions spoke far differently than my words did. And so, what Peter's saying is let your conscience, let your actions play out in your life. Let your testimony actually play out with what you're saying. Let the two line up. Now, for the Apostle Paul, back to our story at hand, he's addressing the crowd, and notice for the second time it's mentioned, he addresses them in the Hebrew language. Public Speaking 101 says, address people right where they're at. Know your audience. Know your audience. And Paul knows his audience for sure. Everybody that's gathered there in the temple courts can speak Greek. It's the, it's the Roman Empire. Greek is the language that is spoken. It's in the marketplaces. Everywhere they go, Paul could have addressed them beautifully in the Greek language, and yet he doesn't because he's speaking to a group of Jews. Hebrew was their And so as Paul begins to speak to them and to address them, look there with me at the end of chapter 2. They kept all the more silent. He's got their attention when he begins to speak to them in Hebrew. And as he gets ready to give his testimony, I want to share with you a couple things, just this, that a good testimony really can be broken up into three different parts. Uh, First of all, uh, who I was before Christ. And we're going to see that up through verse 5 this morning. Then secondly, how I came to know Christ. Verses 6 through 13, Paul's going to describe his miraculous conversion, how he came to know Jesus. And then finally in verses 14 through 21, who I am now in Christ. And Paul's going to give all this in just a few short verses, a very compact and succinct testimony. And I want to challenge you that if you have a testimony, uh, try to keep it in that three to five minute range. That's something you can actually practice. Why? Because we live in a YouTube generation. I mean, people want satisfaction. They want the story. They want you to be concise, and they want it right now. I mean, already right now, there's some of you that are tuning out just after the first few minutes. There's a smell of baked ham now rising up from downstairs. Like, I don't know. How long is this guy going to talk? I'm smelling waffles. Zip it. Nevertheless, three to five minutes is about the amount of time you're going to get someone to be fully and you're sharing your testimony. So it's not a bad thing to practice and to run through it. It's, it's ultimately Jesus' story in your life. And so as you go through it, be mindful to keep him at the center. It's not really your story. You were a part of it, but it's his story in your life. So Paul's going to begin with Uh, who he was before Christ. In verse 3, he says to them, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. 
taught according to the strictness of our Father's law and was zealous toward God as you are all today. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And so Paul is now going to address who he was before Christ after he's gotten their attention. Now remember, this is a group that wanted to kill Paul just a few minutes ago. And Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 says, A soft word turns away wrath. Paul knew that. There's no need to get up in front of them and going, Listen here, you sinners! It's going to happen, right? They're going to pick up stones. It's going to be on with this crowd. Instead, he begins speaking to them in their language, meeting them where they're at, speaking to them softly, and then identifying with them individually. He starts by saying, I'm a Jew. No doubt, this crowd that's gathered for the Feast of Pentecost there, there would have been a huge contingent, probably at least half of them that would have been Orthodox, meaning their, their Jewish beliefs would have been right in line with the law. And so when Paul identifies as a Jew, immediately this Orthodox crowd are like, all right, this is our guy. We're listening. We're locked in. He then goes on with the next, uh, the next line. He says, but I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. This is a Roman province, an area that spoke predominantly Greek. And so as Paul identifies, he's now saying, I grew up in a Roman province where we spoke Greek, just like many of you Hellenists. The Hellenists were Jewish believers that spoke Greek predominantly in their workplace and in their homes. And so now Paul's identified with the Orthodox crowd. He's now identified, uh, identified himself with the Hellenists. Now both sides haven't been alienated. Important to note, before we alienate people with our viewpoints, Jesus is all out to speak to everyone so loving the world, right? So Paul's not alienating anyone. He's addressing all sides. And then he mentions it at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law. Gamaliel was known as the teacher of teachers in Israel. Both Hellenists and Orthodox Jews respected this man as a great teacher of the law. And so now everybody's happy. Everybody's like, all right, Gamaliel, that's our guy. Now then he mentions his zeal. He says, I was even zealous toward God as you are all today, so much so that he persecuted the way. This is what the Christian church was called by the Jews, the way, because they lived so very differently. You think you're zealous? I went out and killed Christians, far more zealous than many of you. And so he goes on finally to say that he, had had, he did this under the approval and the direction of the elders, speaking specifically of the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 Jews that ruled over the Jewish religion. This is the highest court in all Judaism. He's saying, these guys gave me letters to do what I was doing. In fact, it's believed Paul was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. So who was Paul before Christ? A Hebrew, a Hellenist, well-educated, a zealous man. And now the audience is locked in. I mean, they are tuned in to what Paul is saying. He's identified with them. A little bit of a side note, as you're developing your testimony and going through it, important to make mention that you should keep the part of who you were before Christ to about a third of your testimony. 
I'm sure many of you have heard awesome testimonies before. I, I know I have where, I mean, they're just wild. It's like, I was in the Hell's Angels. I toured with Motley Crue. I OD'd six times. And they're like, wow, that's some kind of testimony. And then Jesus saved me. And that's the end. Like, what? What happened? Like, okay, that was an awesome story. But what happened after Jesus saved you, right? And so important to note, right around a third of your testimony should be who you were before Christ. But it's important to spend the majority of the time on how you came to know him and what he's now doing in your life. And so we'll continue with this next portion as Paul addresses how he came to know the Lord. Now in verse 6, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. In verse 9, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. And so I said, What, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, and being held, being led by the hand to, of those who were there with me, I came to Damascus. In verse 12, And then a certain man named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked at him. And so the testimony of the Apostle Paul continues. He talks about his miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus. He's essentially giving us a, a synopsis, a short rundown of what happened in Acts chapter 9. And note with me, as he is giving this rundown, his first question, as the Lord knocks him off his horse on the way to Damascus, is, who are you, Lord? Boy, any great conversion, this is the spot. We have to know who is our Lord. Who is our Savior? And so the first question is, is just as simple. Who are you, Lord? And it's always followed up with, what can I do? <laughs> when you realize the Lord and his greatness and what he has done for you and how holy he is, especially in light of our dark hearts, the next follow-up question is always, what would you have me in the light of this glory? Now, note with me also as Paul is going, he is headed on the road to Damascus intending to actually arrest and bring Christians either dead or alive back to Jerusalem. Paul was just going about doing what he had set out to do. He actually thought he was doing a good thing too, by the way. And what happens is he is intersected by Jesus on his way. More often than not, this is the way Jesus handles these situations. We are going about our business, our everyday lives, doing what we think we're supposed to do, and then he meets us right where we're at, <laughs> right on the road as we're on the way. And here we find the Apostle Paul. He's headed on his way to Damascus. He has in his mind what he is setting out to do, and yet the Lord intersects him in that spot. And for the first time, Paul's eyes are opened. It looks bad, right? His eyes, his physical eyes are closed. He cannot see anything at all for days upon days, and yet his spiritual eyes for the first time are opened. Now, for some of you, it might look like uh, blindness for a period of time, 
But it wasn't blindness for Paul. You see, in that darkness, he was actually able to see his own dark heart as his eyes are being opened. For others, it might be immediate openness, all things that are spiritual, what God is actually up to. Now, as we read through this story, though, I think that there are some of you, as I'm reading that, that are already saying, but I don't have a miraculous knocked-off-my-horse story. I don't have a story that looks like that in my life. Well, you're in good company because there's lots of people in the Bible that don't have the miraculous get-knocked-off-of-a-horse story either. They're more methodical, slower, developing stories. When you look at uh, perhaps Jacob, maybe you've got a Jacob story in your life. When you look at the life of Jacob, I mean, here's a guy who is called out by the Lord, set apart, and yet he was very much a two steps forward, three steps back kind of a guy. I mean, born into a, a family as the name uh, Jacob, his name literally meaning heel catcher, and he was a deceptive little guy. I mean, he tricks his own brother out of his birthright, only to be threatened to be killed by his brother Esau, and so he disappears. He runs off to his family's homeland. And as he's there, he meets a beautiful young woman. He wants to marry her. He asks his future father-in-law if he can, and then he is deceived by his father-in-law. So now the deceiver has been deceived, and he has this back-and-forth relationship with the Lord. He seemingly advances at times, Maybe he's starting to get it, but then what we find is the deceiver deceive. He even tricks his own father-in-law out of a portion of his flock. And so he's struggling with this relationship with the Lord over and over again until finally, as he's headed back into the land of promise, headed back for the first time to meet his brother Esau after years and years of not seeing him, he can't sleep. And there he has a vision. In a dream, he actually wrestles with God. Have you ever been there, wrestling with the Lord? All right, the Lord has to put you in the full Nelson. Back and forth, there's this wrestling that's happened for this guy that has been a deceiver and he's been a trickster, but sometimes he gets it and sometimes he doesn't. And as he's wrestling with God there, and God is no doubt about to win, Jacob clinging a hold of the angel of the Lord by the feet, and what he says, he cries out to the Lord, bless me, bless me, would you please just bless me? This is a guy that's been blessed throughout his whole life, and he's crying to the Lord, would you just bless me? And the angel of the Lord turns to him, and he says, I'm going to give you a blessing. No longer will your name be heel catcher. No longer will you be known as Jacob, but you shall be known as Israel, ruled by God. That's who you're going to be from this point forward. That's Jacob's testimony. Now, that's beautiful, right? He's wrestled with God. God gives him a new name, and you would think he's doing all right after that. But what you find is throughout the rest of his story, he's a man that waffles back and forth in his faith. I'm so thankful for stories like Jacob, right? Like people who are real in our Bible, that are wrestling with the Lord, wrestling with their faith. Where do I stand with God? What God says is, you are, you are ruled by me. You are governed by me. You don't have to live that old life any longer. It's still miraculous, you see. Because the most miraculous part of the story of Jacob or the story of the Apostle Paul, I mean the shining light, knock you off your heart story, the most miraculous part of both of these is a changed heart. There is nothing more miraculous than a heart that is changed, a life that is reborn. 
I mean, think about what you know, even about our practical lives. Who among you would go into the labor and delivery unit out here at Sarah Bush and walk in there and see birth, natural birth, and wouldn't go, what a miracle, right? And none of you are, especially you men, none of you men are dumb enough to go into one labor and delivery room and then leave that one and go to the other labor and delivery room and go, boy, I know this is a miracle and a beautiful baby, but you should have saw what Rogina did over in 206. I mean, man, that was a miracle. I mean, your baby's cute and all, but nothing like that. You're going to get punched in the face if you do that. Nobody's going to. Why? Because they're all miraculous. How much more so spiritual life? Every one of your stories is miraculous because it involves a changed heart. Now, the story here for the Apostle Paul continues with him having to take a step of faith. It, it always continues with a step of faith. For Paul, it looks like you're about 30 miles from Damascus, and now you're blind. Now you've got to walk the rest of the way blind, not knowing one step from the next other than people now leading you by the hand. And this is the way it goes for us in this journey. We don't get to know all the level of detail we would like to know. I would love to know how the story is going to end. But here's the thing. That's not called faith. That's called fact. And God's not a God of facts. Although he is all about facts, he is about us trusting in him. That he will lead us by the hand from faith to faith. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. That our righteousness has grown in him from faith to faith. One step at a time, Paul is led. Now, this is his miraculous story, and now we see he's going to detail out who he is in Christ. Verse 14, and then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. This is Ananias now speaking into the life of Paul who he's going to be in Christ. For you will be a witness to all men in what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The next faith step for Paul was baptism in verse 17 and now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying at the temple I was in a trance and I saw him saying to me make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me and so I said Lord they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe in you and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed I was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you from here to the Gentiles. So for the Apostle Paul, what he is stating is that in Christ he was called to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And yet over and over again, he struggled with this calling because he so loved his Jewish So as he's there in Jerusalem, he's praying to the Lord, and the Lord gives him this vision in a trance. He says, look, you're going to have to get out of Jerusalem, Paul, because they're going to kill you. They are not going to listen to this testimony. They're not going to receive it. Last week we covered that Paul's uh, conversion, he was told, you are to be a witness to me to the Gentiles and then to kings and then to the children of Israel. 
But what Paul continued to try to do is take the word to the children of Israel first. Any of you ever thought you had a better idea about your calling than God? (laughs) Paul did. And I'm so thankful for that because it makes him relatable. Paul was continually getting his calling flip-flopped backwards. And the Lord was saying over and over again, I'm calling you to go this direction. And oftentimes, this is how we feel about a calling in our life. It doesn't always line up with our ideas. It doesn't always. I've got this whole plan in mind, Lord. If you would just get on the same page as me, you could understand what my plan is, and then you could come along and bless it. Wouldn't that work out better? And yet God is so patient with us. He is so very patient to give us time to actually see that his plan is better than our plan. Much like he was patient with Abraham. When you look at the life of Abraham beginning in chapter 12, what you see is a guy who was called out of a pagan relationship, out of a pagan society, essentially out of Babylon. He was taken and sent to a land of promise. Not only that, but as God calls Abraham, he says, look, I'm going to make you the father of nations, which is interesting because Abraham is 75 years old, and his wife Sarah, who he says is going to conceive a child, is 65. Things are getting a little late in life for old Abe. But God says, I'm going to make you a father of nations, even though you have no children, and I'm going to give this to you in this land of promise. And so by faith, Abraham heads to Canaan. And as he's on the way and and now walking alongside the Lord, uh, ten years pass. And do you know what uh, Abraham, the father of nations, doesn't have? Children. Zero. He has zero kids. He's now 86 years old. He has no children at all. And so he and Sarah get together and she says, Hey, uh, Abe, I think maybe God might need our help. God might need our hand in this just a little bit. And so uh, he comes al- they decide, between the two of them, Sarah says, how about you take Hagar, my handmaid, and you go into her, and we'll conceive a child this way. Now to us, uh, that's a very weird thing, but culturally, for them, this was acceptable. If you weren't able to conceive, one of your servants conceive, and would be considered uh, your child. And so they decide to help God out just a little bit. And Hagar conceives, and she gives birth to a son, and they name him Ishmael. Now, fast forward about 13 years. Abraham is now 99 years old. Ishmael around 13, and God comes to Abraham again and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of nations. See, I know, Lord. I got Ishmael right here. No, no, you you forgot what I told you 25 years ago. I'm going to make you and Sarah a father to many nations. Thanks for the help with Ishmael. I'm still going to bless him, by the way. I'm not going to cast him off. I'm going to make him a great nation. But you and Sarah are going to have a child the very way I said you were going to. Now, he's 99. Sarah's 89. This, this story's gone from being a little bit ridiculous to plain funny. In fact, Sarah overhears God telling Abraham this, and she laughs out loud. She, oh, you got to be kidding. I'm an old woman. And God hears her laughing and questions Sarah about it. Why are you laughing? And like most of you, Sarah says, uh, I wasn't laughing. What are you talking about? Yes, you were. I heard you. God was faithful to his promise to Abraham and Sarah, even when they didn't believe it. So at the age of 100 and Sarah at the age of 90, 
she gives birth, and they name the boy Isaac, whose name literally means laughter. I mean, when you see his name, when you hear the story, you're going to have to laugh out loud. But here's the thing. In Abraham's life, even when he was not patient, God was patient. Even when he lacked faith, God was faithful. And God was going to be true to his word, not true to their flesh. Their flesh couldn't see a way that he could make it through this, that he could ever possibly be the father to many nations. And so they try to help God out. But God doesn't need our help. He's going to be true to his word. Now this looks like a tremendous amount of struggle, you know. This looks like a a big mess of a family. But what I want to encourage you in in this is uh, where there is struggle, there is life. Many of you have felt like that in your life where, where it's been a struggle. It's been challenges. Things haven't worked out the way you thought they were going to work out. Your walk with Jesus hasn't been the way you thought. It was going to be all roses and puppy dogs and fairy tales, and it's all going to be good. But here's the thing. Where there's struggle, there's, in fact, Frederick Douglass said that if there is no struggle, there is no progress. So, upon coming to Christ, you might have even said something like this, that it didn't seem like I struggled with You fill in the blank until I came to Jesus. You know why that was? Because you were already given over to it. (laughs) You didn't struggle because you were dead. Dead people don't struggle. Folks that have no spiritual life in them whatsoever don't struggle, you see. But when you come to a life in Christ, it's going to feel like challenges and struggles, but that's how we make progress he is continuing to refine you and work things from the inside out step by step and what god is ultimately doing is untwisting what sin twisted up at the fall with adam the the perfection that god had created got twisted it got literally the word perverted a perversion is an alternative version we're now living out an alternative version to what god's perfect plan was it's twisted And so what God is doing as we come into relationship with him is he is not by not untwisting, untangling the thing that we've allowed to be tangled up in our lives thanks to sin. And so now we have these two different relationships. We have the spirit, the white dog of the spirit, and holy and true, and then we have our black flesh. And the reality is, whichever dog you feed is the dog that's going to win. And so when that dog of the flesh begins to win, we have to question ourselves, what am I feeding? Am I feeding the flesh or am I feeding the spirit? Now for the Apostle Paul, what he's trying to make clear is as God is untwisting him, as he is unwinding what sin has twisted up in his life, is that I'm the Apostle to the Gentiles. It's taken him all this time walking through his calling to go, As he's looking at his Jewish brothers and sisters out there, wait a minute. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. This is who God called me to be. Verse 22, this is their reaction. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live 
And then as they cried out and tore their clothes and threw dust in the air, this is a sign of great mourning. They had tracked along with him until he said, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. Everything in them felt like the Gentiles were worth nothing more than to make the fire of hell burn just that much hotter. They were the straw to the fires of hell. There's no way God wants to save them. And they tore their clothes and they threw dust in the air, a sign of disbelief. In verse 24, And the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said, and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Remember, the commander didn't speak Hebrew. He had no idea what was transpiring other than whatever he said ticked everybody off, and there was now a riot happening, and he is going to have Paul examined to find out what he said. An examination, uh, according to Roman rule, looked like you being examined under a scourge or a cat of nine tails or a flagrum. This is the way they examined Jesus. A long whip with bits of rock and glass on the end so that as they laid it across your back over and over again, you would eventually tell the truth. You would say whatever you needed to say so that the examination would stop. They were getting ready to examine the Apostle Paul in such a way. And in verse 25, And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And in verse 26, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care that you take for this man as a Roman. And then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander said, With a large sum of money I obtained this citizenship. But Paul said, I was born a citizen. In verse 29, And then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. You see, according to Roman law, if you bind and then proceed to examine someone without a fair trial and they're a Roman citizen, you who did the binding and the examination, you have to suffer the same fate that they had to suffer. And so these men immediately Recoil because they find out Paul is not only a citizen, but he did not, as this man did, uh, buy his citizenship. At that time, they would let slaves who had enough money actually purchase citizenship. But Paul says, I was natural born. I'm a citizen through and through. And these men, they took a step back. Now, is the reason for this because Paul was afraid of taking a good beating? Look at his ministry track record. What you'll find is Paul was not afraid of taking a beating just not a senseless one. This one was not going to have a good end. In fact, uh, most people that suffered examination from the Romans, they died. And so Paul knew his time wasn't up yet. He wanted to make it clear, Roman citizen. In verse 30, And the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. The commander wanted to know, why were these people so upset? And so he's going to take Paul and actually set him in front of the Sanhedrin to testify now in front of this very council who Paul used to sit on. He's now going to get the opportunity to testify to these guys as his testimony continues. Now, as we wrap up today, a few things I wanted to note. 
When you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, his faith was one that, like ours, has to also be proven out by his actions. Paul was a man that didn't just speak what Christ was doing in his life, but he lived it out. I want to encourage you in that. Secondly, what we see is that the church here in Jerusalem, uh, they were powerless against anything that the Romans wanted to do to Paul, in large part because they had allowed impurity to seep into the church. That their church was powerless because they were not pure. And so when we wonder why the church in America, the Western church, has no power, it's because we have allowed much impurity into the body. And as a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, so does a little bit of impurity within the church. And as a result, they are completely and utterly impotent. Oftentimes we think that the church is a microcosm of the world, but I would tell you that the world is actually a microcosm of the church. We've had it to get to this point, and yet when you flip that back around, a pure church, one that is committed to letting the Holy Spirit clean us from the inside out, that's a powerful church regardless of the number. There is power where there is purity. Now, when we see the mob taking hold of or attempting to take hold of the Apostle Paul, what we see is that the mob's conviction plays out in their temperament. Is it good to be zealous or is it bad to be zealous? Which side does it fall on? Well, the zeal isn't the issue. Our motivation is the issue. Good zeal plays out in that it actually produces good fruit, where bad zeal plays out that it produces bad fruit. Anytime someone is zealous and it comes out like hate and anger and death, it's bad. But when we are zealous for the Lord and it comes out like empathy and love and care and compassion, that's a zeal that the Lord can get behind. It's a good zeal. Now then, as we wrap up, what we see in the testimony of the Apostle Paul is one that is both simple and sincere. If we want to sum up Paul's testimony in two words, it's simplicity and sincerity. In fact, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is just that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 says this, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. And simplicity and sincerity is how Paul shared his testimony. I'll go back to one final place in Scripture. In John chapter 9, Here in John chapter 9, and we're going to read in verse 25, but here Jesus has just healed a man who had been blind from birth. An unbelievable miracle, the likes of which hasn't been seen in Israel. And so this miracle has taken place, and yet it happened on the Sabbath. Oh, the rules are now being broken. How can this be? But human need always supersedes tradition. That's what Jesus is sharing. And so this healed is now called forward to testify against Jesus, to testify about what he knows about Jesus, to give a defense, an apologia for his faith. And here's what the man says in verse 25. He answered and said, whether he, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner or not, I do not know. I don't know 
all these questions that you're asking me about my theology and my eschatology, but here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. Simplicity and sincerity. I'm not educated enough to know everything there is to know about Jesus, but what I know is I was blind, and now I can see. It's just that simple. A basic defense. And so the question is, do you have the ability to answer that when you're asked? Do you have that simple, basic testimony of being blind and now he's given you sight? And if you don't, here today, here's the beautiful thing. Um, Today's a great day to change that. All it takes is a simple ask. Lord, would you come into my heart? Would you change me from the inside out? I promise you, are there not very many guarantees in this world? Death, taxes, Holy Savior. He is 100% effective that if you ask him to come into your life and change you, if you want his spiritual rebirth today, all it takes is a simple ask. Lord, I know I'm blind and I'm tired and I don't want to live like this any longer. Would you just change me? You don't need a pastor to do that for you. You don't need a church seat. You just need you and him and a personal relationship. Fall down on your knees and say, Lord, change me. And he will be gracious enough to do that. Bit by bit, little by little. Maybe you'll get knocked off your horse. Maybe he'll change you slowly. But he will be gracious enough to change you. Now, if you've got that change story for the rest of you, and you've already asked that question, he's changed you, I want to encourage you to share it. Share your story with people. Speak to them about what Christ has done in your life. Now, that can be terrifying. That can be scary because all these things come into our mind. What if I'm not smooth enough with my words? What if I don't know enough? What if they don't accept me? What if they make fun of me? What if they kick me to the curb? What if they antagonize me? Here's the reality. They might do all of the above. And that's not on you. You know whose problem that is? Jesus. His problem is the of your testimony. That duty, that responsibility doesn't fall on any of you. The only thing we have to do is share. And he will, I promise you, put people in your place, in your path, that are the right people to hear those words. It won't be everybody, but there'll be somebody that needs to hear your story, that your specific experience with the Lord speaks to directly. He will put someone there that needs to hear that in that moment. The first time I ever got the chance to share my testimony, May the 4th, 2016, sitting at Parkland Chapel on a Wednesday night, I'd only really come to know the Lord a few months before that. He'd started to change things, and things were falling off, and I got asked to share my testimony, and I was terrified. This is frightening. I got to share, though, with those people about what God had done to my family, what he had done in my life, how he had had to pluck me out of here and take me hours away so I could get my head screwed on straight. And as I'm sharing my story, there's a lady sitting in the second row, and she's crying. And then there's her husband sitting next to her, and he looks like he wants to stab me in the face. I'm like, oh, man, this is going really bad. Like, that dude's going to kill me after church, I'm pretty sure. 
And yet those two approached me after church. And she said, I want it that I've got a son who is your age. And he isn't where you're at now, but he's where you were before in that story. That story spoke to me, and it's going to speak to him. Is there any way you could share that story with him? How can I get a hold of whatever you just shared? And because I was so worried about my story, I had it typed up to share. I still do that to this day, by the way. I don't say about half of what I write, so there you go. But, but I was able to hand it to her, and I said, I, I don't know if I could speak to this exactly the way I did again, but, but here you go. And as the tears hit that page, she said, thank you. That story was for me tonight. You see, there's always somebody that needs to hear it. It's not on you who receives it. It's on the Lord to open the ears of the people that need to hear that right then and right there. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for testimonies. Lord, we thank you for the way you work and you act and you move in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the chance we have to share. It's terrifying, Lord, to share. But we thank you for giving us the ability to speak and to share your story in our life. Often we get confused that it's got to be our beautiful story, but the reality is it's your story. It's his story. It's history. It's his story in our lives playing out. Lord, thank you for the way you shape things and you mold things and you move things around just right. Father, thank you for being patient with us. Man, we struggle through this life. It is so very hard to be able to continue to go down this path and yet you are so patient with us. Thank you for your word that meets us right where we're at every time. Father, as we get ready to observe communion, would you just make our hearts ready? Create in us a clean heart, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you guys to just come in however uh, manner you'd like to. You can grab a cup for your family or you can get one for you individually and just uh, bring it back and you can hold on to it. Uh, we'll observe communion together here in just a few moments. I first believe my
has ransomed me like a flood his mercy reigns unending love amazing grace the Lord has promised to me his word my hope secures and he will my shield and portion as long as life in Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul um, was addressing a church that had got the Last Supper and communion all wrong. <laughs> and so he gives them the reset key here in verse 23, and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Father, we joyfully and excitedly take the opportunity today to do just that. We for your body, which was broken on our behalf. Lord, we praise you for the work that you did on the cross, the payment that turned away wrath that you paid, Lord a payment that we can by no way ever earn or deserve or work hard enough for, Lord, that you willingly gave yourself and you gave up your body for our behalf. We do this in remembrance of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Then in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, we praise you for your blood that was poured out on our behalf. Lord, as we take the opportunity to partake, we pray that you would just cleanse us from the inside out, Lord. Would you let this do a mighty work in us? Would you create purity in us? Would you allow us to be drawn just that much closer to you can be a people of a powerful testimony? We thank you, Lord, that Revelation says it's by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony that the enemy is overcome. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. And upon partaking of the bread and the cup, they rose after that and they sang a hymn. So we don't do that many hymns, but here goes. Please stand. You've been walking the same old road for miles and miles. You've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies. You're trying to fill the same old holes inside. There's a better life There's a better life You got pain He's a pain taker You feel lost He's a way maker You need freedom saving He's a prison shaking savior You got chains He's a chain breaker all search for the light of day in the dead of night we've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight we've all run to things we know just ain't right when there's a better life there's a better life you got pain he's a pain taker Somebody testify If you believe it If you receive it If you can feel it Somebody testify You got pain He's a pain taker You feel lost He's a way Shaking Savior, you got you. He's a change.
church says. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right. Praying that the Lord blesses you guys throughout the week. Please, please stick around for a lunch, brunch today. I'd love to have you guys as guests. Plus, as you can tell, I don't need all those biscuits and gravy. So I don't need the leftovers. I need you to help me. In Jesus' name, go down there and partake. So uh, thank you guys. If you need prayer for anything at all, happy to hang around. I'd love to pray for you guys. God bless you. Have a great week. Thank you.